If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 14 today. Um, if you are new with us, I just want to uh, remind you a couple things. Uh, first of all, uh, we have been going through this book of the Bible, the book of Matthew. And Matthew is one of four books that deals with the life and teachings of Jesus. And we've said this often, but I will say it again just to remind us. Uh, although Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four uh, gospel writers, are writing historical facts about Jesus, they're not just doing so from a blank slate. They have a particular purpose and point that they are trying to make about who Jesus is. And Matthew is explicit about this. Right from the very beginning of his book, he makes the claim that Jesus is this figure who he calls the Messiah. And if, if you've heard that word before, you might have some notions of what it means. Uh, but for the Jewish person, the person that was living, breathing this word into their everyday experience of the world, uh, it was invested in a deep amount of meaning. Now, in its most original form, Messiah was just the Hebrew word for anointed one. But of course, through their history, uh, they began to look at the kind of people who were being anointed with oil. People like King David, a warrior king, heroic, a man after God's own heart. And Prophet said a future Messiah was going to come, someone who was going to be like David, but instead of just ruling over Israel, was going to come and bring God's rule and reign and restore the people of Israel, restore God's kingdom to the whole earth. And so it is within this framework that Matthew wants us, his readers, to understand who Jesus is. So periodically throughout his work, he's going to be pushing us as readers to ask that question, who is this Jesus? And this is exactly what we saw a couple of weeks ago. Turning back from Matthew 14 for a second, just a couple uh, verses earlier to the end of Matthew chapter 13, we see the scene where Jesus is back in his hometown, Nazareth. And in Nazareth, there's all these people that grew up with Jesus, and he gets into the local church, the local synagogue to preach. And he starts talking about who he is, and, and, and they've seen him do all these miraculous deeds, and they've heard about it. And they start to think, man, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? In fact, they say in chapter 13, the second part of verse 56, they say, aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? Where then did this man get all of these things? And not only is Matthew recording what's going on, but for us, he's reminding us as readers that this is a question that as he fills out for us the story of Jesus, we must seek to answer. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go through a series of stories, a series of teachings that Jesus does, and a series of reactions and responses that we see to Jesus. But each of these is carefully placed to help us answer the question, who then is this Jesus? And what does it actually look like for him to be the Messiah? Is there any Bible nerds out there, like people who just love biblical studies, like love going deep? Okay, so I'm going to add this. This is like your, your free Bible nerd moment. For those of you who are like, just tell me how to live, you just, you just got to grin and bear with it. Matthew is immersed in the Jewish scripture. And he is immersed in such a way because he knows that all of this scripture points to Jesus. And there's this whole rich imagery that has said, this is kind of what Jesus is going to be like. This is what he's going to fulfill. This is what he's going to overcome. 
And so in the story that we're going to read today, it's, it's one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. It's the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, it's uh, the only story of Jesus besides the resurrection and his death that is actually in all four gospel accounts. Matthew's carefully layered this story with imagery from the Old Testament. And so Jesus is going to be in the wilderness and he's going to feed hungry people. What does that remind us of? Exodus, yeah, exactly. Moses. Moses going into the wilderness, bringing manna from heaven. And this is Matthew's little trigger. It's like a hyperlink saying, hey, remember what Moses did? Remember, Moses said there's going to be a prophet greater than him who's going to come. Guess what? It's Jesus. And Jesus is going to multiply bread, and there's going to be some left over. That's going to trigger for his Jewish audience the story of Elisha, one of the great prophets of Israel. Second Kings chapter 4 Elisha's with a hundred people, and this guy comes, and all he has is 20 loaves of bread, not nearly enough to feed this hundred people that Elisha's with. And yet, Elisha says, you know, trust God. He's more than capable of meeting your needs. And the bread not only feeds the hundred people, but there are some left over. In the same way, Matthew's careful to tell us that Jesus not only multiplied the bread so that everyone was satisfied, but there were some over. He's saying, that's just a pointer to the satisfaction that is ultimately going to be found in Jesus. So don't miss what Matthew is saying about Jesus. At the same time, Matthew wants us as his readers to understand what it looks like when we too are part of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom that Jesus as the Messiah has come to establish. And so he's not just there to convince us who Jesus is, although that is a primary function of his work, but he's there to also teach us what it looks like when we are completely transformed by the impact that he has on us. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to continue on today in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one right over there by Kirk, or you can uh, easily download one from the app store on your phone. But we're going to dive right in here. So Matthew chapter 14, 13 starts by saying this. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now, if you weren't here last week, you're probably wondering, well, what What's Jesus talking about? Like, what did, it, what did he just hear? So just quickly remind us. Last week we learned that Jesus is co-minister in the announcement of the kingdom, his cousin, a man who baptized him, a man who was speaking truth to power, a man by the name of John the Baptist had been arrested and then executed by the local king of that region, King Herod Antipas. Now, King Herod wasn't a particularly powerful monarch. He was sort of a middle management monarch. But he ruled the, the region of Galilee in which Jesus was in. And John's disciples came to Jesus and said, this is what's happened. And not only that, but you're on Herod's radar now. He knows about you. And, and this is what he's saying about you. He's saying, man, I think this Jesus is just John the Baptist resurrected. And so Jesus gets this news. And imagine what you would feel like in this moment. Someone you deeply care about has just been killed. A cousin, a friend, a fellow minister. And the guy who killed him, he's thinking about you now too. I don't know about you, but my response would probably be pretty similar to Jesus. I need to get some space. I need to process this. Oftentimes, it's easy for us to think of Jesus as this detached deity type figure. He doesn't feel, but we see throughout the Gospels that he feels deeply. He is fully human. And we see it so potently in this moment. 
which of us would not need a little bit of space to process when we got such horrible news? And so he does what any one of us would probably do. He gets into a boat. He's like, we just need to get away. We need to go someplace where there's no people so that we can figure this out. So he goes with his followers and they jump in a boat. But listen what happens. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So Jesus is at this time situated in the city of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, right by the the lake. It's called a sea, but it's really a, a lake. And all of these people have been impacted by his teaching and his healing. And there's many more people who want to come and experience him. They yearn for him. They want to meet him. And then suddenly he just picks up and goes. And they're like, I don't know where he's going, but I can kind of see the trajectory of his boat. And we're just going to figure it out. And we're going to be there when he lands. So they start going. And as they're going around the lake, they're going through villages. And people are like, why are you in such a rush? What's going on? They're like, well, just Jesus guy. Have you heard about him? Yeah, we've heard about him. He's, he's going across the lake. And we're going to go meet with him. So the crowd picks up. More and more people join. And by the time Jesus gets to the place that he's going, it's supposed to be a quiet place. It's supposed to be some time for some TLC, some time to just process and think and grieve. What does he find? This needy group of people. It says in verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Church, I don't know about you, but when I'm tired, when I'm grieving, you know what I don't want? A bunch of needy people. And then I became a pastor. (laughs) Just kidding. Look at Jesus' response. It says he had compassion on them. Jesus looks at these people clamoring around And he does what Jesus has always done, what he will ultimately do on the cross. He lays down his life to serve. John's not mincing words. Matthew's not mincing words when he calls Jesus compassionate. Because again, as we just talked about, Matthew is steeped and the expectations that he's been reading about through his scriptures, through our Old Testament. And that word compassion, it didn't come out of nowhere. In fact, it's the word that God uses to describe himself. You guys know that? The Old Testament, God is described as compassionate. Some of us have this vision of God in our mind as detached or angry. And yet throughout the Hebrew Bible, It's called compassionate. I love this. In the the story of the Exodus, story of Moses, uh, Moses, the guy who who leads the people of Israel over uh, across the Red Sea out of slavery to Egypt, who who goes up to the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments of God. He wants to experience God. He wants to see God. And God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, you can't handle me. I'm too much for you. This amount of holiness, you're a broken person, you just, you can't. Moses says, no, God, I I think I can. And God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to like walk in front of you, I'm going to keep my back turned, so all you get to see is my back. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of who I am. And in chapter 34 of the book of Exodus, this is what God says. It says, as he passed in front of Moses, he proclaimed, 
The Lord, the Lord, literally Yahweh, Yahweh, the name of God. What does he say? The compassionate and gracious one. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The Bible makes the claim that Jesus is God. Paul actually writes that in Jesus we see the fullness of the deity. We see the fullness expression of what God is like. You want to know if God's compassionate? Here it is. What does his compassion look like? Looks like someone who would come after receiving some horrible news, needing to process, putting that aside, to lovingly care for a bunch of needy people. But again, Matthew's purpose isn't just to tell us about Jesus, it's also to tell us how we should be transformed. And so he records this about the disciples. It says, as evening approached, the disciples came to to him, meaning Jesus, and said, Jesus, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So here the disciples are, and they look around, and they're like, oh, there's a bunch of people. And again, I mean, these people just saw Jesus leaving. They dropped what they were doing, and they left. They didn't know where Jesus was going. So they didn't plan for like a camping trip. It wasn't like they brought a bunch of hot dogs and hamburgers to kind of roast over the fire at night. I mean, they had nothing. They've been there all day, clamoring around Jesus, waiting to be healed, waiting to talk to him, waiting to listen to him. And later it tells us that there were 5,000 men besides women and children. Scholars think that could be anywhere from 10,000 to 25,000 people. So this is a massive crowd, a small city, all gathered there, and no one has anything to eat. Um, My wife gets hangry. And when she gets hangry, I know I need to get her some food quick. Because if I don't, things are not going to be pretty. And I imagine there's a little bit of that sense for the disciples. They're thinking, man, there's 25,000 people here. And people are starting to get a little hungry. We, we probably just need to, you know, we probably just need to get rid of them. Besides, Jesus, you know, we came out here to have a little bit of a retreat, to process, to give you space. Like, these people are kind of, a little bit of an inconvenience. Let's just send them away and they'll go get some food. Look at that contrast. I mean, it's so stark. Jesus comes, sees a need, pours himself out. The disciples see a need. Let's get rid of them. They're an inconvenience. Here's the thing that was going on. I think the disciples very much did not see the crowds the same way as Jesus. What was it that caused him to say, here's a moment where I need to put myself aside, lay down my life for these people. In Mark's parallel account, it says that when Jesus looked at the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like a group of people who were walking around, didn't know where they were going, falling in holes, getting stuck, easy prey for wolves, They had no direction, no care. And Jesus said, come, 
for these people. In fact, that's what he told his disciples. Hey, he said, come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. This is the mission. These are the people who we're here for. In the same way, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the same call to you. You've been called to be a fisher of men, of women, of neighbors, of co-workers. And yet so often, aren't we just like the disciples where we look and we see a superficial need and we're like, eh, let's just send them away. It's kind of inconvenient, Jesus. You know, I got some Netflix show to watch. These guys are kind of cramping in on my personal time. I was reminded of this as I was uh, preparing this week because uh, we had this you know, crazy snowfall. Um, I lived in Alberta for a while, so I'm not unused to snow, but there's a reason that I moved back here. <laughs> and I actually came back with a vengeance. I left all of my like, snowboarding gear, like my jacket, my snow pants, all of that in Alberta so that I you know, could live in beautiful Victoria and never experience snow again. And then God's like, well, you know, I got different plans for you, so boom, snowfall. There's something interesting that happens in Victoria, though, because snow is so rare. So Wednesday comes along, and, you know, this big snowfall has happened, and, uh, and, uh, and I, like, I don't know about you guys, but in the winter, like, our neighborhood's just kind of shut down. It's dark, it's rainy, you know, it gets dark at, like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and so everyone kind of comes to their house, runs in. We don't see our neighbors a lot. It's pretty rare uh, to actually be able to talk to people. And yet we, we believe that God's placed us in this neighborhood to be on mission. And so right in the middle of the week, we have a snow day. And school's out, and parents are staying home from work to be with their kids, or they don't want to drive. And it's like my whole neighborhood decided to come alive and go out to the, the playground near a house, and there was sledding and, and, snow, and, and just snow games and everything. People were having fun. And my buddy Quentin... He's, uh, he, he used to live in the neighborhood, so he's coming by with his girls. He's like, hey, you should come out and come sledding with us. And I'm like, nah, I don't really want to. <laughs> I mean, I legitimately was working. I mean, I was working from home. I was prepping for today. Uh, but, you know, all these excuses start coming to my head. You know, well, you know, it's cold. I don't want my snow stuff. Here's the thing. You know what I was missing? I was missing the fact that this wasn't about sledding. This wasn't about snow. This was about sheep without a shepherd. And there's this opportunity that God had opened up for me in a moment to go and be with my neighbors, to hear their stories. to learn about their lives and ultimately to continue in the process of pointing them to the shepherd that they didn't even know they needed. I didn't want to do it. It was inconvenient. How many of us have been there? You have neighbors and it's just easier pull into your garage, turn the front light off and have a quiet family time than it is to go over and talk to them. 
Or maybe your neighbors are loud and obnoxious. We have Scottish neighbors. I won't say any more. Maybe it's your coworkers. It's it's just easier to show up at work, keep things superficial and light. And, you know, you see the same people, you hear a bit of their stories, but you know, man, if I keep talking to this person, they might become needy. They might start telling me about their life and expecting me to help them. Oh man, Jesus, I don't know. Let me send someone else. Let's let's send them away. Someone else will give them bread. Maybe it's people in our networks. My in-laws, they're fighting the system real hard, uh, so they will never go to a self-checkout because they're like, no, this is keeping people in work. And I'm the opposite. I'm like, I don't want to talk to people when I'm shopping. I hate being here in the first place, so self-checkout, here I come. But there's something else going on in my heart. Uh, There's a reality that in that moment, I'm putting myself and my own desires above actually having a human interaction with someone. We go to restaurants, to grocery stores. We buy clothes from stores. All these moments are people in our networks. And maybe you have that store. Maybe you're one of those people who sits in the same Tim Hortons every, every week. You get that same coffee. Have you missed in that moment that these are people that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm... I want to be their shepherd, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he's actually placed you there in that moment. And in that moment, you're like, ah, Jesus, send him away. I'm just going to have my coffee, talk with my friend. It's going to be good. So before we move on, I just want to invite you to meditate on this question and ask, is my response to the mission of Jesus one of compassion? laying myself aside, or is it one of indifference? It's good news, though. Uh, Jesus wasn't prepared to leave the disciples in this place. And so verse 15 says, uh, or verse 16 says, Jesus replied to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They do not need to go away. Why did Jesus say the crowds didn't need to go away? Because he knew that the real problem here, it wasn't that they were hungry. I mean, they didn't come to Jesus to get food. They came to Jesus to get Jesus. And the disciples, they just wanted to send them away from the thing that they actually needed, from the person that they actually needed to experience. And so instead, he said, hey, if this is a problem that's going to keep people away from me, guys, do something. You do it. And the disciples come to him, and in verse 17, it says, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus, this is all we got. It's, I mean, there's 25,000 people out there. This isn't even enough to fill Peter. I mean, that guy eats. Five pita breads, two sardines. Like, come on, Jesus. Do you ever feel like that in the mission that Jesus has called you to? He says, hey, I got something for you. 
And it just seems so much bigger. And you come to Jesus and you're like, Jesus, I, I don't have the resources for that. I don't have the skills for that. Jesus, I'm five loaves and two fish. I don't, I'm not good with words. I'm an introvert. How do I talk to people about you? And I don't even like to talk to people. It's like, I, I didn't go to Bible college. I don't have a degree. I barely know what's going on in here. I read it, and I don't always understand it. Just like, my life is a mess. I can't even deal with my own family issues. How am I supposed to give the truth to other people? I'm five loaves and two fish. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, it's enough. It's enough. When we think about our mission and vision as a church, if you were here the end of, uh, uh, the, end of the year, a couple weeks ago, we're preaching on it, and, and I mean, it's big. We believe that God has called us as a church to saturate the city of Victoria with the gospel, which means that we hope to see every man, woman, and child in Victoria have a daily encounter in word and deed with Jesus through his church. That doesn't just mean West Village, but we do believe that the churches of Victoria are called to be on mission to this city. Now, that, that sounds really good on paper, but have we ever actually like sat down and just thought about what that means? I mean, there's roughly 400,000 people in the greater Victoria area. And, you know, I love West Village. I'm like Chris. I come here. I'm hugging. I'm saying hi. I love catching up with people. You guys are awesome. But I'm going to be honest with you. You're five loaves and two fish. We're a five loaves and two fish church. The city of Victoria is far bigger a task than we can do on our own. We're talking about literally spiritually raising people from the dead. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I want to come to Jesus and say, I can't do this. Just like, look at my life. Man, I can't even get out on a snow day and talk to my neighbors, let alone reach the city of Victoria. Verse 18, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, it's okay, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. Jesus is looking at each one of us and he's saying, you know what? You're a mess. You're ill-equipped. You don't have what it takes Perfect. That's all I need. And then says, verse 19, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Jesus not only takes the little that the disciples have, he does something crazy, but then he gives it back to them. And he invites them to experience his work 
through them. You may ask yourself, why didn't Jesus just do it? I mean, Jesus could have said, okay, whatever, guys. Like, I'm going to, you know, start growing weed out of the grass miraculously. And, you know, we're going to make flour miraculously and make bread miraculously. And it's just going to go and it's all going to be awesome and crazy. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to use the little that his disciples have. Why is that? Because there's something very powerful that happens when Jesus takes broken, inadequate people and makes himself known through them. He gets the glory. You know, West Village, we could be a church of thousands of people with the best programs, the coolest preachers, the hottest bands, with money to throw at every little thing that we do. And people look at us and say, of course you're successful. Of course you're doing awesome. You've got everything that you need to succeed. But what happens when Jesus takes ordinary, average, insignificant people who are under-resourced, and he does something amazing through them? People take notice, and they say, there's no way you could have done that on your own. And he gets the glory. And again, what is Jesus' job? What is his task? What is his desire? It's to show these people who are sheep without a shepherd that he is the good shepherd. And the way he does that is through inadequate people like me and inadequate people like you. When we come, like the early disciples, insignificant, unimportant, unimpressive, God does amazing things through us. He takes a Ken and a Shannon. He says, hey, you know what? I want to do something amazing. And when people look at you and they say, there, there's no way. How do you, two ordinary people, adopt four kids and then you know, remortgage your house so you can foster? That's Jesus. There's no other explanation. And Jesus looked really, really good when he does stuff through really broken, inadequate people. Now, there is a little bit of a caution here that I want to pose for us. You see, one of the things that the disciples didn't recognize is they didn't recognize the real need of the crowds. And so they looked around and they thought, man, the real need of the crowd right now is food. And the solution that they came up with, it was practical, it was rational. It was like, okay, their immediate need is food, let's get them food. And so often, we as Christians can look around and, and we see people and we see that there's something not right with them and we think their problem is that they just need something to eat. And so we give them surface level solutions. There's a story I remember hearing a pastor in our network telling, he was doing a conference and, uh, and he was talking about what it looks like to be on mission to your neighborhood, what it looks like to allow the gospel to permeate your life in the relationships that you have. And he told this story of a lady who came up to him after and she was talking about, you know, what was going on in her neighborhood. And she said, yeah, you know, we're, we're totally on mission to our neighbors. And, you know, we're inviting them to our house and we're serving them. And he's like, oh, that's great. And she's like, but we, we haven't ever had an opportunity to, like, have a spiritual conversation with them. He's like, oh, okay, well, do they ever ask you why you're doing what you're doing? She's like, oh, yeah. He's like, well, what do you tell them? So we're just being neighborly. It's like, but that's, that's not really why you're doing what you're doing. 
See, in that moment, the lady, what she was responding to was hungry people that she thought just needed bread. And she neglected to understand that what they really needed was the bread of life. That's how John talks about Jesus. John says that after Jesus performed this miracle, he was teaching, he said, you guys think you need bread, but that's not really what you need, you need me. I'm the bread of life that's truly going to satisfy you. I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago. I was in a DNA group with Adam and Ben, a couple of guys in my community group. We're sitting in the hot tub together, you know, as as it's great, you know, this is like a a total DNA, like, uh, hack. You want to have good DNAs? Hot tubs. So we're sitting there and we're we're chatting uh, about what it looks like to allow the gospel to permeate what we do. And uh, Ben said something that's that stuck with me. I'm a new parent, and he's been a parent for a few years longer than I have. And, uh, and he was saying, you know, for me, there's this really easy temptation to look at my kids and just be satisfied with good behavior. Because like, it's easy, you know, I can make them good citizens. They're following all the rules. And, and it's just nice. And that's kind of, a lot of times, like what I want to do in parenting is just get them to behave well. I said, here's the problem. That can actually be the most dangerous thing for them because in that moment, they think that that's all life is about. It's like me saying, you're hungry and here's some bread. Instead of actually going into the deep and hard work of unpacking their deep need for the bread of life. And that hit me. It hit me in this really powerful way. I started to think, you know, what does it look like if we don't look at our kids' misbehavior as just them having bad behavior, but actually as a discipleship moment where in this moment we actually are given an opportunity to say, hey, this is God showing a need that needs to be worked through that can only actually be worked through by bringing us to the gospel, by helping our kids see that what they need is not that thing that they're having a temper tantrum about, that's just the bread. But what they need is the bread of life. And it would completely change the way I look at discipline. You know, in our conversations with friends as we're on mission, you're going to get into people's lives and you're going to hear their stories and they're going to have relationship problems and they're going to have parenting problems and they're going to have interrelational problems and they're going to have financial problems. And, and we can give them a lot of really, really good advice And there's nothing wrong with saying, here's some wisdom. But if we miss out on actually bringing them to Jesus, then we're just giving them bread when what they really need is the bread of life. And this is why we as a church talk about gospel fluency all the time. Because this is hard. It's hard to to go to your neighbor and say, hey, the reason I'm shoveling your driveway isn't because I'm just trying to be neighborly. It's because Jesus came and literally shoveled the driveway of my life. He cleared away all that junk at his own cost and his own expense. And this little picture, and this is a picture of what he's done for me that I want to show you. Matthew finishes off by saying this, they, meaning the crowd, all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of what were left over. And the number of those who ate were 5,000 men besides women and children. 
So Jesus takes the little that the disciples have, he breaks it, he gives it back to them, and then he sends them out to give it to others. You know, in many ways, this is a picture of what we call gospel saturation. Jesus takes the little bits that we have, the insignificance, he reworks it in himself, gives it back to us, and then it flows out of us into the people around us. And Jesus isn't just like a, you know, I'm just going to give you enough. He wants to pour it out of us. And so as it comes to us, it overflows and it overflows out of those people. I mean, there's this extravagance to this. You know, the thousands of people are fed and then each of the disciples gets to take a little doggy bag home with them. That's amazing. That's a good God. And in this moment, the extravagance, the extravagant love of Jesus has a picture, a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us in the cross. He doesn't just do the bare minimum, he does it all to the point where we are fully satisfied and then it spills out over us. It's interesting, the, the, the way that Matthew records Jesus talking about the bread, he uses the exact same wording as he will later on to describe what Jesus does at the Last Supper, and that's not an accident. You know, for, for us as readers, Matthew wants us to understand that this moment, this moment isn't just a picture of Jesus feeding people, it's actually a picture of who Jesus is and what he's come to do that's going to be filled out later at the Last Supper. As Jesus takes the bread and breaks it and gives thanks and then gives it to his disciples, he's going to do that again at the Last Supper, representing that he will be broken for them, that his blood will be shed for them, that he is the only thing that can satisfy them. And likewise, as he gives it to his disciples, is a picture that he wants to use them. And what does he say in Matthew 28, the very end? Therefore, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What you have seen me do, what I have given to you, it's going to flow out of you. It's going to spill out of you. So what the prophet Habakkuk says in 2.14, when he writes, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that every person as they experience Jesus, as he fills them up, that they flood out his glory to the point where it touches other people and it spills out over them and it spills out over them and over them until everywhere, every man, woman, and child starts to reflect the glory of God over the whole earth. And as this abundant satisfaction in Jesus comes into play, it tells people this is what Jesus is like, this is who he is, and it gives him glory. And so for us, there's a little bit of an application here. There's an opportunity to recognize that when we give graciously and abundantly, we're actually giving people a picture of what Jesus is like. A couple of weeks ago, we were doing our community group fast track. It's an eight-week preview for people who aren't yet in a community group to understand a little bit more about what a community group is. And we were having this conversation about uh, what it means to live out the gospel in everyday life. And so we're doing these role-play kind of scenarios. And one of them uh, got a lot of controversy. So the, the scenario goes like this. You're at a restaurant, and you get mediocre or maybe even bad service. And you give that person an overabundant tip. And the people in our fast track were like, ah, 
that doesn't, I don't know, that doesn't seem good. Like, we could be encouraging someone to give bad service. It's like, yeah. But look at what Jesus did for us. I mean, the Bible says that we were enemies of God, that we were estranged from him, that we rejected him, that we were rebellious against him. You want to talk about bad service? And yet, what does God do? He gives himself, sacrificially, though we did not deserve it. So as we continue to follow in the mission that Jesus has for us, one of the best ways that we can demonstrate what he is like is through abundance. And this isn't some kind of weird prosperity message where it's like, you know, give and Jesus is going to fill you up and give you more. Like if you give $10 to this ministry, the ministry of Andrew, you're going to receive $100 more. If you want to try that, I'm very happy to be part of your experiment, but... No, this is a sense that says like what Jesus has done to you, he wants to do through you. So when you experience the abundant love of Jesus, he wants to spill that out of you in abundant love and grace and compassion for others. Why does Jesus do all of this? Why did he come? Why does he feed hungry people? Why does he lay down his life compassionately for a bunch of needies like us? It's because he loves us. This is the quintessential Christian verse. You know, you see it on football players all the time. But it's so true. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but live with him in the age to come. That's what Jesus wants. And that's what he wants us, as his church, to continue to live out. And so you're invited today to participate in his mission. And as you go, I want to pose for you three questions to consider. Sort of diagnostics to ask, am I actually following in the footsteps of Jesus? Has his spirit actually transformed me? Am I allowing him to do what I cannot? Number one question, am I filled with sacrificial compassion? When you look around your neighbors, do you see a bunch of annoyances, inconveniences? When you're at school and you have people in your grade who are like, you know, just awful, do you see a bunch of people who are like, I'm just going to avoid them. They're annoying. Do you have siblings like that? You're like, ah, man, I don't even want to be around them. Or are you being transformed by Jesus so that the way that you look at them is compassion? You start to say, this is, this is reaction to a need that's on the surface, but there's a need that's deeper. And because I see that that need is there, that they need the bread of life, that they need the good shepherd, and my response to them isn't going to be one of annoyance or indifference. It's actually going to be one of gracious compassion. Second question to reflect on. Have I been living in a spot where I am allowing my limited resources to be the excuse for why I'm not pursuing what Jesus has called me to? When you look at your life, is it defined by your limitations? 
Because the invitation of Jesus is to bring those limitations to him and understand that he wants to use them. I have watched people in our church family who are socially awkward introverts be the best evangelists and missionaries that I know. When we first started our community group, we had a couple, Greg and Rihanna, uh, super awkward people. Love them, but they're super awkward. And I remember uh, they started having gospel conversations with our tenants who are from India and they're Hindus. They just so naturally had this. And I looked around, I'm like, Greg and Rihanna, they're five loaves, two fish. And yet they've submitted that to Jesus and he's working through them. Let me tell you, friends, if Greg and Rihanna can do it, 100%, you can. You just got to let Jesus take it. Be faithful with it. Give it to him and ask him to be the one who actually works through it. Third question for reflection. Is the radical abundance that you have experienced from Jesus flowing out of you in the way that you interact with the people you're on mission to? Is there extravagant generosity? Is there a laying down of your life? Is there a sense that when people come to you, they're not just getting the bare minimum, they're getting satisfied and there's some left over? Jesus invites us into this process because ultimately he knows that when we submit ourselves to him, allow him to actually do the work that we can't do on our own, allow him to pour out of us abundantly that he gets the glory. And when he gets the glory, people take notice and they start to realize, I thought I was looking for bread, but now I see that I was looking for the bread of life. We're going to close here. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. As they do, I just want to remind us that we're going to get a chance to respond. And we're going to respond in a couple of different ways. We're going to get to respond through song. And this is a place for us just to proclaim to each other, proclaim to our own hearts how good Jesus is. To be reminded that he is the one that can satisfy and has satisfied us. And he does so abundantly. We're just going to get to praise him for it and say, thank you, Jesus. Give him glory. Number two, we're going to get to respond through giving. And in this moment, this is us taking our five loaves and our two fish and giving them to Jesus and saying, you know, Jesus, this is what I got. But I know you can take it and blow it up. We're going to get to respond through taking communion together. In his account, Matthew is very careful about the wording that he uses. And he does so such a way, and we don't quite capture this in English, but in the Greek, that he actually calls what Jesus is doing a banquet. He says that when Jesus calls the people to sit, the word he uses for sit isn't sit, it's the formal word for recline, as in reclining around a formal banquet meal. It's no accident Matthew has put this story right after his account of a very different banquet. But it's a banquet that represents what our world is chasing after. The banquet of Herod. It has everything. It has sex. It has power. It has abundant substances. And individual 
expressions of meaning. But what is the end result of that banquet? Death and destruction. We're invited to a very different banquet. A banquet that actually started with death and destruction. Of the broken body of Jesus ripped apart for us, the blood of Jesus shed for us. And if you're today, someone who said, I want to be fully satisfied by Jesus. I can't do this without him. I've been chasing after bread my whole life. I'm like a sheep without a shepherd, and I need to come to the bread of life. I need to come and submit myself to him. You're at a place that you can say, yes, I'm going to do that. I have done that. And please come, and if, if you're not there yet, it's okay. He's doing something in you, and when he does, come and join with us. Finally, we're going to get to respond through prayer. We're going to get to respond by going to the one who can truly satisfy, bringing the multitude of needs to him, submitting them to him, and getting to watch as he takes those and shows us what we really need is found in him. Let me pray for us. Father, I just want to thank you for this day. God, I know that we are a five loaves and two fish church. And so, Father, I just ask that as we come before you week after week, as we come before you every month, at taste and see, as we pray and fast and give ourselves over to you, that you would be at work in us. As you were in your first followers, a group of unimpressive five loaves and two fish people, and yet who you use to transform the world. We recognize we might not see it in our time, but we trust that you are a good God who knows that the city of Victoria is a group of people who are sheep without a shepherd and that you care about them more than we do. And so we submit ourselves to you and ask that in us that you might do a good work. That we would be part of your role of bringing satisfaction to this people. Amen.